So the walk of life. One of the great things that we see in the Bible is that we, we see laid out before us right from the very beginning, right to the very end, in all of the different uh, ways in which the Bible describes and the Bible shapes, we see patterns of how to walk and at the same time patterns of how not to walk. Now, one of the great challenges as we come to certain parts of the Bible, I guess, is that because um, it was written so long ago, because it was dealing with events so long ago, then we might tend to think it's got nothing to do with us. Uh, There are two things I want us to keep in mind as we engage with that. The first is this, that the, the descriptions of the events are absolutely and quite rightly shaped by the time and the age. They are shaped by that. And so there are some things which are going on in those events and patterns of life which quite clearly, quite obviously, are not absolutely key for us today. But bigger than that, we see patterns and ways of living or alternatively ways of not living which are timeless. So we like to think, don't we, 21st century people, that we are, uh, we're beyond all of this kind of history stuff. We're, we're intellectually far more uh, able. We are intellectually superior. Uh, therefore, we can dispense with the past. One of the things that I think we need to realize as we come to the Bible is that this is the living Word of God for all time. And when the New Testament first hearers were confronted with the message of Jesus, they heard the same message as I've just suggested to you. They would have come in Roman times as the New Testament was beginning, as the message of Jesus was going to spread through uh, Roman, uh, the rest Western world under Roman rule. They would have considered themselves very superior compared to the ancient world. They would have considered the ancients to be barbaric. They would have considered the ancients to be almost irrelevant. We are the supreme uh, being. We've reached the epoch of human civilization. (laughs) Isn't it interesting? Every generation pretty much tends to feel that. And yet what Paul said to Timothy was this. All Scripture is shaped in such a way so that it might be relevant for your day-to-day living, to challenge you, to confront you, to encourage you. Now, one of the words that is used when he describes that is Scripture, is the word graphe. And that is used exclusively in the New Testament for the Old Testament. For the Old Testament. Paul is saying to New Testament readers... To those first believers, all of the stuff from the past, from history, is relevant for you today. It's important for you today as patterns of living. And so that, I think, gives us absolute right to then say, guys, we're going we're to take a journey to ancient Palestine and we're going to see a scene. There's going to be one man surrounded by a group of 
disciples and then a greater way surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of people. There is no technology. There are no iPads, iPhones, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Nobody is going to tweet anything of what Jesus says at that moment in time. That does not mean it is irrelevant for us today. It means that it has timeless perspectives which we continue to need to hear. Why? Why do we say that? Why did Paul say that to Timothy about the old uh, stories of the Bible, the old, hit, the old narrative of the Bible? Why do we say it about Jesus today? Because we are talking about the same thing. We are talking about the breaking in to human history of no less than the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God. That's what we see. That's the claim that the Bible makes. So here we have these disciples in this little section that we read. The first thing that we see is Jesus saw the crowds. Uh, He went up a mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. There's a little bit of debate, but pretty much most commentators have a clear understanding that what Jesus is doing is speaking specifically to that small group of people. Do you see the way it works? There's masses there, uh, and yet what Jesus is focusing on at this moment in time is this small group of people who are, he sits down with them and he teaches the disciples. Now, inevitably, as that is going on, we see others listening in, uh, gaining some perspective, hearing what is going on. Jesus is speaking to this little group of disciples, and we read it, a whole load of blessed. Jesus is encouraging his disciples. Who are they? They are fledgling, infant followers of Jesus. To remind ourselves of that. He is relatively new to them. They are just taking infant steps in their pursuit of following Him. And He's saying to them, I want you to understand that there is, I'm going to show to you a pattern of living which is wise before God. It's a way to live before God. It's a way to understand and to live before God. It's a way for you to be. Come and learn from me. As I walk, you walk and listen and learn. Let my life be a pattern for your life. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't, isn't that interesting that the way that ties in with what we've already said? There are patterns of living that we see in the Old Testament that Paul says, I encourage you to look at it, but ultimately Jesus says, come and pattern my life. Come and live according to the life that I live. So let's have a look at what Jesus is saying. Firstly, he brings a picture of brokenness before the disciples. Essentially, I don't know what preempted this little question. We don't, we're not told. It might have been 
Jesus just proactively telling them this piece of information. It might have been something like one of the disciples saying, tell me, how do we, how do we know that we are blessed by God? How do we know, in other words, that we are in relationship with God? Whether it was asked or whether it was proactive statements of Jesus, that is at the core of the discussion, isn't it? What does it mean to know that we are in relationship with this God? What does it mean to know that I am blessed by God? Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Isn't it interesting, the pattern that Jesus brings? How might we know that I am blessed by God? Well, in a sense, what Jesus is encouraging these followers to see is that the removal of certain experiences is not the definition of blessing. The fact that things don't go away is, no, let me put it another way. The expectation that problems and challenges and difficulties disappear is not the mark that you're okay. Rather, what Jesus says is, look, poor in spirit, mourning, an expression of brokenness. You will be comforted, but don't expect necessarily for them to go away. I don't know what your expectation is of following Jesus. But I think one of the challenges that we have in our experience-focused generation is this. I expect that the experience of being a follower of Jesus is going to right, going to resolve the negative experiences of life. I expect that when I come to the God of all creation, that all of the bad stuff is going to go away. It's going to be all right. I want to really make it be be totally open and clear on this this afternoon. If we expect that that is how it's going to be, that somehow there is the, the magic dust from heaven that makes everything right in life, then we are going to be disillusioned in our Christian walk. We're going to fall in expectation. It is going to fail us. It's going to fail us if we come to the Christian faith expecting that. He says, but here we have this. We say, poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Those tough things, we tend to decide, 
I've got to make sure that somehow I resolve them. In fact, the whole of the pursuit of the human race, I guess to some extent, is the resolution of these kind of problems. If we take our minds back historically, if we go back in time a little bit, what we find is that over the history of the world, various ideologies have, been, have emerged to liberate the suppressed, to break the bonds of those who are crushed. Go right back in time and we remember, those of you who remember, the French Revolution and the storming of the Bastille. Look at that and we think, well, isn't that a liberation of the oppressed? If we take ourselves a little bit further forward and we see the, uh, the rise of communism, Marxism, isn't that the hope of the liberation of the oppressed? If we look at other ideologies that have emer- emerged over time, isn't that the liberation of the oppressed? Isn't that dealing with poor in spirit, those who are broken, those who are mourning? Look at the next step that Jesus says. How do we respond to that challenge? You know, the human experience is to rise up vitriolically. And what we see is that whenever all of those ideologies, and I'm not, let me just make this clear, the injustice of the French aristocracy (laughs) resulted in the rightness of the response of the people. But look at the challenge of our human history. Every time there is a rising up, that ideology of liberation itself becomes an oppressor. It becomes as despotic as that which has gone before. Isn't that a challenge? Isn't that a challenge to our very being that we see these things that are rising up hopefully in liberation and yet time and time and time again we see brokenness as a result of that which rises up to heal the broken. Is it possible therefore that what Jesus is talking about in these verses is not some sort of socio-political rising up. I want to suggest yes, that is exactly right. He is not talking about rising up and breaking those who are poor in spirit and those who are mourning because of all of the injustice of this world, although that is a good thing to do. He's talking about a bigger brokenness, a bigger broken spirit, a broken, mo- a, a greater mourning, which is ultimately our poor in spirit and our mourning before God. Before God. When I realize <laughs> that when I stand before God, I realize and I look into my very being. Many of us have reached this experience. Many of us know what this is like. I look at my own person, the very being that I am. I'm not talking about the surface. I'm talking about the Paul deep down, the real me. 
I realize I am poor in spirit. The reality of my very being means that I mourn. There is brokenness deep down. What is the response? Well, if the human response to brokenness is rising up, that, that looks like the complete opposite of the next step that Jesus encourages us to take, which is what? If it's not rising up, it's what? Meekness. <laughs> what does meekness look like? When I, when I reach that point of saying, in the reality of my being, I don't rise up and say, your demands are wrong. I say, you are absolutely right. And I am still broken. I end up looking at my being, realizing that I am ineffective, incapable, and I actually say, I have no way to rise above this, to stand up in great sort of haughty response, I say, in brokenness and meekness. Help me. Help me. Do you know when we start to think about these verses in that way, I think what Jesus is saying is this. What does it mean to be in a relationship with God? It means that I start to... What does it mean, to put it another way, to walk the walk of life? I start to walk the walk of life really realizing that I have no right to walk this walk. I have no capability to walk this walk. I am broken in this walk. I am mourning and I am meek in this walk. I am a failing, hobbling, tripping over walker. And then he says, but don't forget. Because those who are like that, poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones who will be comforted. They're the ones who will inherit the earth. That's great news, isn't it? So the very ones who are broken are the very ones who will receive. Isn't that contrary to what we saw as the rising up of ideologies? The rising up of ideologies says, let's rise up and let's claim that which we don't have. And Jesus says... Actually, the ones who will receive are the ones who don't make any claims. The ones who are meek, the ones who are broken. Isn't that amazing? It's completely contrary to what we expect. Do we walk like that? Because it doesn't actually sound much like walking, does it? It sounds like hobbling along. It sounds like actually there's times when we're breathless and we have to stop. It doesn't sound like the running a race that Paul describes it, it feels like we're just kind of crawling along. I reckon that there's some here this afternoon who will be thinking, do you know what, that is great news because that's how I feel. I actually feel, I don't feel like I'm running like an athlete. I don't feel like I'm equipped like a soldier. I feel poor and broken. And God says the great news is when you feel that not before everybody else, but before God, that's what it is to be blessed. 
John Bunyan wrote a, a book called The Pilgrim's Progress, it's a book which described a walk of life. Great book, book of its time to some extent, but a great book. What he describes is a, a, a pilgrim who is walking this pathway. One of the great things I, I picked up as I read that book as a youngster was this. This guy is not very successful lots of the time. He struggles, he strays, he ends up in the wrong place, he does the wrong thing. But you know what? He is on the path of the king. That means he's blessed. So when we come with that attitude, when we come with that response before God, what is the next step? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'll say that again. (laughs) Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Wow. Now, one of the, maybe you're looking at this Christian faith and you're thinking, well, you know, there's lots of things that are beginning to fall into place. I can see, I can see the importance of a God I can see the relevance of a God who reveals Himself in the person of Jesus. I can see the need to be forgiven. But the great challenge that I have is I know myself. And I know that if I take those first steps, I know the reality is that I don't think I'll keep it up. I don't think I'll be able to keep putting one step in front of the other. I know I'll fail. I know that I will not be consistent. Maybe, maybe some of us who've been walking that pathway will say, yeah, no, that's just the way it is. That's the way we are. But look at, what the, look at the absolute phrase that is used. It is not saying blessed are those who live righteously. He's not saying the demand is to live consistently righteously. He's saying it's to love righteousness, to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. In other words, it is the desire which is the key, not the constant delivery. That is absolutely essential that we get our minds around that, that we understand that it is to love and to desire actually what we realize we cannot consistently deliver. I can't, I can't walk this walk. I can't walk this walk of life. I can't do it. But you know what? I just hunger and thirst after the ability to do it. Do you know that you can worship things in their presence and in their absence. It sounds strange. We can value something when we have it and when we don't have it. The best illustration I've heard of this is water in a desert. You kind of roll over the top of that sand dune and you see a pool of water. In a real sense, going and drinking that cool water is worship it, isn't it? 
It's valuing and loving and worshipping that which you have. But you know, your trip across the sands where you've been desperately been looking and hoping and loving the idea of water is just as much the love and value of water in its absence as in its presence. Here's the thing, folks. Do we love? Do we desire? Is our, our, our hearts moved to at least try to walk that walk? Is that something that we desire? Is that something that we love? You know, here's what... Here's what Jesus says. For a start, you're blessed if you love that. If you have any scrap of desire to love and to follow Jesus, it's because God is working in you. It's because God is working. Because by nature, we have no desire. It's because God is working in you. But to actually respond and to hope and to love the idea of righteousness, God's goodness, not my goodness, not my desires, not my standards, not what I love, but rather what he loves, to love that. Jesus says, do you know what? You'll be filled. (laughs) What does that mean? I think it means this, that little by little, you'll start to live what you love. Little by little, you'll start to live what you love. That's why we talk about the walk of life. That's why we've said over these past few weeks it's important that we live who we are. If we live who we are, little by little, we will live what we love. But it also says this, that even if my my journey of living what I love is a kind of rocky little few steps along the bottom of the graph, there is going to come a day when I am blessed by God and I will be righteous. Not just I'll be more righteous, I will be righteous. I will be filled completely. In other words, what God promises is that what you desire, because God is working in you one day, is precisely what he will fill you with. That's great news, isn't it? That is what it means to be blessed by God. It goes on to say this, okay, there is that desire for righteousness. If we have a a kind of a a sub-suggestion for this series, it's this. The walk of life is living wisely in the light of, of the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I think it's tied up in this little verse. Jesus lived righteously. He lived righteously because he was righteous. He was good in every way. But because he was good in every way, he lived that out in every way. The walk of life is living in the wisdom of Jesus who we see and learning to live little by little more like that. You see, there's a little bit of a, there's a journey that is going on, therefore. 
in these blasts that Jesus says. What are we seeing? It's not, and this is where I've got to say I struggled with this section for a lot of years because I considered the idea of all of the ways in which we're blessed as disconnected from each other. Actually, they're progressively connected to each other. They go together. They go together. Jesus is not saying blessed is everybody in the whole of the world who mourns. Because not everybody is blessed who mourns. One of the responses to mourning is to shake our fist at God potentially in the tragedy and anger of the events of life. Therefore, not everybody is blessed in that way, but rather if there is that connection that I see who I am before God, I feel broken, I feel poor in spirit, I mourn about my condition. I realize in meekness that I have no hope. And then I desire God's righteousness. Then I want that. There's a connection. Jesus could easily have put it like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, uh, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, blessed comes on, is the big heading under which that progression sits. And when I realize that I am now in my brokenness, in my poor in spirit condition, I realize that now I am pursuing righteousness. I wasn't before. I was poor in spirit, but now I'm pursuing righteousness. Some of you might be in that situation right now of realizing I'm pursuing something, I'm looking for something, I'm, I'm desiring something, and here's the question. What should I do next? I know I'm broken. And Jesus says this, in that brokenness, pursue the righteousness of God. That's where to head. That's where to go. Go on this journey. This journey of living this life in the light of Jesus living in this world. The desire for righteousness. Look at, there are two effects to that. The first effect is that when we pursue that, when we hunger after that, we live differently. Look at the way it de- develops. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Do you know what? The reality is, there are more people I could, I could ever dare to count who are way, way more merciful than me. Way more merciful. I stand in awe at the mercy of some people. But it's not the mercy that Jesus is talking about. The mercy that Jesus is talking about is the reshaping of me in relation to the fact that I have been shown mercy by God. Do you see the difference? I'm poor in spirit. I'm broken. I'm mourning. I'm meek before God. 
And he comes in and he says, pursue righteousness. And then I realize what I've received from him. And then I get changed a little bit to live more mercifully than I was before. In other words, the work of God in me is what changes me a little bit from what I was. I am more merciful than I was. I am not as merciful as I ought to be. But I am more merciful than I was. And it's the mercy that counts. Because it's mercy that has been shaped in me by the power of God, not the kind of mercy that I've been able to develop of my own kind of inner fortitude and stoical commitment. It's a change by God, not a change by me. And that's the difference. That's what walking this walk of life means. That when I start to walk the walk of life, I change a bit. I confess I am not what I should be. But I've been changed a little bit. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Do you see the way it's almost encouraging us to think that when we start pursuing the walk that Jesus is describing here, there are ripples of change that extend out. Ripples of change that extend out. If you were here before Christmas, one of the things that we looked at, one of the Uh, sessions on the uh, risen Jesus, the, the ascended Jesus, was this, that we live, or we should live, as an aroma of Jesus in this world. 2 Corinthians. An aroma of Jesus. That's what an aroma looks like. It becomes more merciful. It becomes more pure in heart. It becomes peacemaking. That's the kind of change that goes on. What does peacemaking mean as an example? It means that little by little our inclination is not to enhance conflict, (laughs) but to enhance peace. To look for ways for resolution, not to look for ways for retribution. To look for ways for gentleness and kindness, not to look for ways for payback. It's what peacemaking looks like. We have no tendency towards that. But you know what? That's precisely what God has done towards us. He has made peace with the rebel. He has brokered relationship with the one who is in opposition to him. That's you and me. And therefore we become what we are. Just what we were looking at last week. Here's the paradox. All of that sounds great, doesn't it? But the paradox is this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. We've just said righteousness is a whole package of good things, isn't it? And now we're saying blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. 
One of the marks of walking the walk of life is that it is a walk that will meet opposition. It will meet opposition. Why? Why will it meet opposition? Because it is not appeasing our own sensibilities. It is seeking the righteousness of God first. And the righteousness of God is in opposition to the world that we live in. The world that we live in is rebelling against God. Therefore, when we pursue the righteousness of God, even though it has all of the marks of good things, it will meet opposition. Now, the first Christians found this. The first Christians realized this under Roman rule. They they pursued good things. All sorts of things happened in the first few centuries because of the impact of the message of the Bible. The the pattern in ancient Rome, in fact, there was a fascinating little uh, clip on, uh, I think it was on one of the news channels, about work that is being done in South Korea by um, a, a pastor over there who's created a little, uh, a little uh, box for babies to be placed in who are not wanted. Babies who would be abandoned, placed into this box. The person j- drops the baby into the box, rings the bell, and rather than the baby being killed, the baby is saved and put into an orphanage because of the, the culture which doesn't want certain children. This amazing thing that's going on right now in South Korea. That is exactly what happened in the ancient Roman world. Babies would be abandoned, left out to die, particularly if they were females, and particularly if they were uh, disabled in any way. So the, the babies that were kept were the young boy or the baby boys, uh, and those who were, for some reason, just wanted. And the church intervened. God's people intervened and said, hang on a sec, we've started to realize something. We started to realize that even those little babies are valued by God because they're made in the image of God. No matter who they are, what they are, whether they are broken in one way or another, they are valued and loved by God. And we are going to value and love them. What are they doing? They're showing mercy. Showing mercy. They're doing good things. And at the same time, because they're pursuing righteousness, they also said, oh, and by the way, alongside these good things, we also want to have the freedom and liberty to worship the God who we believe in. Not the gods of the Romans. Don't impose that on us. We want the freedom and liberty to worship the God who we see in Jesus. You see how there's an opposition there. And all of the good that is being done amongst the saving of babies didn't count for diddly squat. Because now you're saying that you want to go against the God of the Romans. And therefore our cities are going to collapse. And all of the problems are your fault and therefore we will persecute you. (laughs) Whenever we say that we are truly in all of its breadth pursuing the righteousness of God, we will meet opposition. 
one of the problems that I think the church has had down through the years, it has been so objectionable at, at times that it has almost sought opposition. And that's wrong. We should, we should confess the sin of that obnoxious behavior. But we should pursue righteousness even when it hurts. I said right at the beginning, do not expect the Christian faith is an easy walk. The walk of life is a walk will, which will be opposed. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you're here for the first one, if you weren't able to be, you can download it. Jesus said this, In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. (laughs) What's he saying? He's saying, look down through the centuries. We've seen that God's voice has been silenced through death. They've killed the prophets... I'm pursuing the voice of God because I am the voice of God. And do you know what? I'm killed as well. And then he says to his disciples way before that event took place, you need to realize that there is this, this is not some kind of nicey, cozy, cutesy decision. This might be a life and death decision. This might be a life and death decision for you. Because in pursuing the righteousness of God, there is the potential of death. And Jesus does not say that as some distant observer, does he? He says it as the ultimate and perfect model. He's the one who comes in and says, I live this life, I die this death, I buy you, I purchase you through my death so that you as well might live this life of righteousness. I guess we could summarize by saying the walk of life is identified by opposition.